Hi, my name is Mike Herbster. I'm privileged to be the director of Southland Christian Camp Ministries. For over 25 years, Southland has centered itself around the ministry of preaching. We believe that God uses the foolishness of preaching to convict hearts and transform lives. Our prayer is that today's sermon would push you to become more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As you listen, would you carefully evaluate your life in light of God's Word and take the appropriate action to grow in your walk with Him? We hope that you will enjoy today's message. titled this message, Commitment as Christians. Commitment as Christians. Now, the word commitment obviously derives its form from committed. You could say committed Christians. You've heard people say, we need, we need committed Christians. You need to be a committed individual. And I try to be specific with the words that I use, and I, I'm, a, I'm a quote guy, I like definitions. I like defining things and knowing what we're saying instead of just generalities. And uh, so let me define for you. My favorite dictionary personally is the 1828 Noah Webster Dictionary. Uh, He was a born-again believer and many times would incorporate Scripture into the very definitions that he uses. So if you're still stuck with Miriam online, uh, you might try checking up the 1828. It's free. You can get it online. But I'm going to also let you know that his definitions tend to be a little lengthier Little, little verbose in the definitions. Normally there's four, five, six, seven different options you have, and each one of them is a small paragraph. So if you're looking for a quick, succinct definition, you might stay away from the 1828. The word committed, by definition in the 1828, and I'm giving from the uh, dictionary itself, the act of committing, ascending to prison, a putting into prison, imprisonment, it's equivalent to sending or putting in simply as a commitment to the tower or to Newgate, or for the sake of brevity, omitting the name of the place, it's equivalent to putting into prison. So that's number one in the definition. Uh, number two, an order for confining in prison. But more generally, we use mitimus. So committed. Number three, the act of referring or entrusting to a committee for consideration a term in legislation as the commitment of a petition or a bill to a select number of persons for consideration and report. Number four, uh, the act of delivering in charge or entrusting. Number five, a doing, a perpetration as of sin or a crime, commission. And then lastly, number six, the act of pledging or engaging or the act of exposing or endangering. Now, I don't expect you to write all those down or to really funnel all those through your mind and have them categorized, but I want you to note that the word committed or commitment, it's varied in its definition. So if you said, um, we need committed Christians, what do you mean by committed? Do we need more that are, by number one, being incarcerated? Do we need more that are, by number two, committing something? Here's how I I view it. Based off of these definitions, it seems there are some Christians who are committed to the cause. 
others who should be committed because of their cause, others still who have committed against the cause. Logically, the question is not whether you are a committed Christian, but what kind of committed Christian are you? I think I was chatting with somebody at dinner. It might have been Mrs. Herbster. We were talking about food. I think we were talking about the area of dedication, and I had made a statement that actually goes parallel to this thought. Folks, we live in a world that's exceedingly dedicated. The question isn't that we need more dedication. It's, what are you dedicated to? It's not that we just need more commitment. That's what we need. Young people today need to be more committed. Folks, we have commitment, but many times we're just committed to the wrong things. And instead of living by faith, based off of a life then that's dominated by fear, we're making decisions and we're committing to something that truly is not eternal. In chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, the time frame would be AD 66, and you have Paul at the end of life, at the end of days. He knows his time is coming when he's going to be with the Lord. He'd already expressed to the church at Philippi years prior that he desired to be with the Lord anyway. So this is, this is not a problem in his mind or thinking. It's a reality that he is embracing. He's come to the end of that course, the end of the race. And he is looking back and he is able to make some declaratives in these 22 verses that I want you to think about and summarize in your life what kind of commitment do you display as a believer? Because once you assess that, you'll have a better understanding of whether you are living by faith and moving forward by faith in the faith, or maybe you're being dominated in the area of fear and you're being held back. I'm going to open up with a word of prayer. I know Brother Mike had prayed, but I just wanted to ask the Lord to bless our time together and, and give us clarity. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the music that we have heard and that we have participated in singing. I thank you for the words. I thank you for the way that it was conducted. I thank you for the attitudes and the hearts that it seems are behind the words as the young people are singing. There seems to be good participation. And I pray that they wouldn't just be giving lip service, but that as Brother Mike had said, it would, it would be from the heart, not hypocritical. It would be the genuine faith, not the un- uh, uh, or the, uh, the feigned faith of those that are simply going through the motions. May it be the unfeigned faith that we live out and display in our lives. I pray that we would be committed as Christians to the faith that you've called us to, not just committed to our own visions, our own dreams, and our own ideals. It's in Christ's name I ask. Amen. I want you to see, first of all, in verses 1 through 4, Paul was committed to Christ even though many preferred fables over the faith. Paul was committed to Christ, even though many preferred fables over the faith. This wasn't limited to A.D. 66. This is something we're facing in 2019. And there are those that in their life, they are not choosing to take the time to study, to show themselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Literally, in the Greek, the rendering of not being ashamed means that when you have the power and the wherewithal to do something, you take action, and you do it. You stand up for what is right. 
You don't shirk back and shrink in the day of battle. You don't say because of the adversities around you that you can't be committed to the cause. You don't say, well, there's just so much confusion. There's so many things coming from all sides, and it seems even though we're in a seemingly theologically struggling society, we also have the greatest resources that should point us in the opposite direction. Never before in the history of mankind have we had at our fingertips through technology for good causes the opportunity to read and to study and to grow. Yet I would say that if you go back in time even 30 or 40 or 50 years, you'd find the average Sunday school child more literate spiritually than many who are in college. I remember when I went off to college and I was studying um, well, I first went pre-law, and then I changed over and followed the Lord's leading and surrendered my life to preach. And so I changed to Bible, pastoral theology, and I remember going through some of the classes that I was taking, the Greek and the Hebrew specifically. I was a biblical languages minor. And I remember feeling as I was going through those classes that, wow, this is, this is difficult. This is hard. Maybe it was a point of struggle, and I would try to tap into some of the guys that had really gifted areas of understanding the languages. And then I was reading and I was looking at the history of many of our Ivy League colleges that no longer are establishing the preachers of today, but it's what they were founded for. It's what it was based upon in Harvard and Yale and Princeton and others. It was for developing preachers and those that were called to the ministry. Do you realize that there was an exam they had to take before entering and they had to know Greek and you had to know Latin that was before you ever got to college. Something is changing. Our commitment level, our willingness to embrace these things. We have need of being ashamed because even though we have the opportunity, we're not taking the opportunity. Our commitments pull us in so many different directions that the one needful thing we covered this morning in chapel, we can't be committed to it. We can't take time to it. It goes on to say in Verses 1 and following, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And then in verse 3, I'm going to have you underline the word for. Why do we preach the word? For, here's the reason, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, you could put on a parenthesis there, commitments, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Literally, those things that are not real. Aesop's fable. I could read you one tonight. It would be maybe a good exercise for bedtime stories, but might waste a little bit of our time, which is precious. It's not real. We all know that the red hen isn't able to really say to the others that they can't participate in the eating of the bread because they didn't participate in the making of the bread. It's not a real story. Um, I think of... Uh, Good Dog Carl is not Aesop's fables. Anybody familiar with Good Dog Carl as I go through my litany of children's stories? My four daughters should all remember this. 
Good dog Carl is about a Rottweiler that takes care of the baby. You might say that doesn't sound like a good proposition. It's a great book. It's one of my favorites. It's not real. It might really have happened somewhere and been motivation, but it's not real. There are, there are channels on television and cable that are dedicated to presenting stories. And I, I tend to be a bit of a critic, especially when it goes back into the historical. And I'll try to spare you the agonizing details, but if my daughters are watching When Calls the Heart, I'm going to have to just... I'm just going to have to say there is nothing about that that is accurate. Nothing. I could address the immodesty. They wouldn't have been dressing like that in 1875. I'm telling you right now. They'd have had a goose down parka zipped up to their throat. Um, they would have been dirty and smelly. It wouldn't have been the makeup fest and the, uh, the, 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 the horse and pony show that that thing is. Have you noticed the roads? Perfectly perfectly raked out gray gravel that obviously on the set they had just poured that morning. Where are the potholes? Where's the mud? This isn't real. It's, it's, it's fictitious. It's fake. And yet, there are those that that's their view of 1873. Oh, by the way, all that romance, it really wouldn't have been a part of it in 1873 as well. There would have been standards, I'm telling you, even amongst the general population that would have been vastly different than what's portrayed on something like One Calls the Heart. But that's, that's enough of my tangent. <laughs> there are some that give in to the fables. And we like to give in to that. And I had a person ask me some time back, why do I think that the Hallmark Channel does well with Christmas specials that all have the exact same plot? and were seemingly written by four fifth-grade girls. I think it's because there is that fable, fictitious aspect that draws us out of reality. And when everything ends well, and you know the ending of the movie, two minutes into the movie, there's security there. There's no suspense. There's no wondering. It's, it's a fable. But this is far more serious than saying you really, really just love all those specials on Hallmark Channel. Here's what they, in verse 4, have volitionally done. Notice its active voice. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth. Remember this morning, it was the choice of the journey. There it is. They choose. Remember Abraham? He chose. It says when God spoke, he obeyed. There was that line of saying, I hear, I understand, I know, I could choose to go another way, just like Jonah did, but Abraham obeyed. When they're presented with the reality of the word, they shall turn away their ears from the truth. And then notice this, because this is passive voice. This means it's outside the bounds of their control. The first part was in their control. They could have obeyed. They could have listened. They could have hearkened. They could have done what Scripture says. They chose not to. They turned away to that which was fake, that which was not even real. And then here's the result. And they, is implied as the subject, they shall be turned unto fables. You realize that Satan was more subtle than any creature in the garden, and he is still more subtle. He hasn't changed in his MO. He still operates off of that subtlety. And Paul saw people around him who willingly chose 
to live within the world in the context of this world and their commitment, their giving of themselves was to something that wasn't even real. Scripture, the studying of it, the preaching of it must be the central part of our lives in all seasons of life. I had you look at that word for. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Why? And then the word for. As a conjunction, it's tying the point back to verse 2. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. It will be through the avenue of preaching, even though in estimation from man, it might seem to be foolishness. It's still the method that God is going to use within His church and through the body of Christ to draw our hearts to that which is true, that which is found within the Word of God. I've said to our church, back when we went through our study in the book of Acts, and we went verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we got to the passage where it speaks of those that were at Berea. And they were more noble than those that were at Thessalonica because they would search the Scriptures daily to see if these things be so. And you might have heard people say, out of context, be a Berean Christian. Go back to the book of Acts. You don't have to now, but later I challenge you. Go back to the book of Acts and read that account. They weren't even saved yet. They weren't saved. They were unsaved individuals at that point, and they had the basis of truth, and they were seeking for truth. So the indictment to us as believers just got ramped up like four notches. When the unsaved world takes the word of God, and they want to scour it, and they want to know if these things are true, and they'll go through the pages and they'll start to underline and uncover and they want to find it. By the way, the Lord will reveal himself to them. It might be the Ethiopian eunuch who's saying, I don't know what I'm reading. Is he speaking of himself or another? God's going to be able to take Philip who's at the revival in Samaria with the masses of people and by the Holy Spirit of God, he's translated to the revival of one. Those that will seek will find and yet, as believers, if our commitments draw us from that which is true to that which is fictitious, woe be to us. Because the result is the active choice of leaving, of moving away from the morning of God's Word, to not make it central, to not cling to it, to not hold to it, to not stand fast upon it. I make the choice of moving, but I can't control the consequences. I can't control the fact that my heart becomes confused. My mind becomes confused by the litany of things around me that are vying for my attention theologically. And then it becomes kind of like mush in my head. Folks, we need to make the Bible central. For the campers who come to this camp, if you can encourage them and promote in their lives something that wells up inside, that when they go home, they start after one week of having consistent devotions and they continue then on in studying the Word of God. When they face difficulties and trials and problems, if at any point the motivation now starts to go back to go to the Word of God rather than just phoning a friend to get through the problem, that is a success. But if at the end of the week, if all they've learned is that you are like the coolest person in the world, you are like their best friend ever, like, 
And they want to stay in touch with you. And they want to communicate with you. And they send you letters. And they want to hear how college is going. And they want to someday be in a camp just like you. If at the end of the week all they got was you, you have failed. You need to point them. Direct them. Get them into the Word of God. Help them understand that Joshua 1.8 is still true. If you want success, meditate in it day and night. Take time in it. Commit it to memory. Understand that Satan is subtle and he wants to lead you astray. And he's going to do it through the mind if you can't have your heart. If you can't have your soul, even as a believer. Brother Mike and I were talking earlier and I told him I'm so thankful for his family, for their commitment to Christ. Not just commitment to a camp, not just commitment to parenting, not just commitment to each other as husband and wife, all those, those are all great things. But to be committed to Christ, that is what keeps the bond of friendship strong. I'm going to share a little bit later on towards the end of the message. Those that were committed, and then they left. They walked another way, and they went another path, and they were no longer with Paul in those final days. My wife will tell you, uh, I love the men of this camp that I have known through the years and the couples. And as I get to meet new staff, some of my greatest friends are, are right here. And you might say, does that mean that you guys are texting each other all the time? Hey, I'm driving by your house. No, actually not. We don't do that all the time. Do weeks go by that you don't communicate? Weeks at times? Yeah. Months, what is the defining point that I promise you that because of the faith that I have with Jesus Christ and because of the faith that they have with Jesus Christ, it's that when a long gap of time has passed and we come back together, nothing's changed. It's as if time stood still and we can pick up right where we left off and we continue to forge new memories moving forward. I had some friends in my neighborhood years ago, they weren't saved, and if I bumped into them 20 years after the fact, do you know what happens? We have nothing to do except rehash 20 years ago. There is no basis of moving forward because there's nothing with Christ. So how you doing? My friend was Tyson was his name. That was his first name. Tyson Moore. How's it going, Tyson? Oh, it's going good. Wow, you got married and... You have like 15 kids, Eric. That's exciting. Okay, wow. So you're visiting your folks. I'm visiting my dad. And, and uh, how you been? Been well. Been well. What are you doing now? I'm a pastor. Oh, that's great. That's so good. What are you doing? This is all true, by the way. This isn't hypothetical. I, I work for Merrill Lynch, and I'm, I'm based out of Virginia, just here visiting for Christmas. And I was walking the dog. It's so, yeah, I got married. My wife and I, uh, we just, we're having our first. I don't know how you do it with all those kids. And, you know, we're just struggling with the one. And, yeah, yeah. Um, remember that time that we filled up the garbage cans with water and uh, we pretended it was a swimming pool? Yeah, that was good. That was a lot of fun because uh, we were too poor to actually have a swimming pool, but we had 55-gallon trash cans. Yeah, we should have cleaned them out ahead of time. <laughs> that was funny. It's funny, all the garbage that was still kind of on the top, and you just kind of skim that off, and then you'd, you'd climb in and Remember how you climbed in, and then I climbed in differently, and, and uh, he decided to sit in the garbage can, 
Well, if you take a 50, you're going to have to try it. Now you're going to have to try it. You can get a 55-gallon garbage can, fill it completely full of water, and then you go, you go ahead and just kind of sit in it. Well, he kind of got stuck in his can. I had gone in the other way, so I was just basking in it. And people were driving by on the street there, and there's two boys, both in a 55-gallon garbage can. And here we now are in our 40s, and we're still talking about that. Because I have nothing else really in common. My commitment is different than his commitment. And when your commitment is to Christ and to Christ's word, you're going to find that there is a bond that goes so much deeper and so much further. And I had said to Mike, not but an hour and a half or two hours ago, I had said, it's exciting to think that some of these young people, they are going to meet and potentially make lifelong friends this summer, that 20 plus years from now, they're still going to be communicating with each other. And they'll be able to go back and say, it wasn't just because it was a really hot summer in Louisiana. Remember that heat wave we had? They'll be able to say, you know what? It's the summer that we were both committed to Christ and to his word, and the Lord did great things in our heart. There will be those who are turned from the truth. This step, which they propagate by their own actions, has disastrous results. Secondly, I want you to notice, Paul was not only committed to Christ, in the face of those that preferred fables over the faith, but Paul was committed to Christ even though many would not finish or fight for the faith. Verses 5 through 8, it says, But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Folks, we watch not only to be on guard from the enemy without, but to be on guard from the enemy within. Our flesh does not want to war against the Spirit. It wants us to lay down our arms and surrender so it can have victory each and every day in every situation. The fact that you have a war going on is proof that you are walking in a right path. Let me say that again. If you're struggling, whether it be the guys or the girls, and maybe now you're at day two in staff training, and you say, I am struggling in the area of, and you filled in the blank. Praise the Lord for that. It's those who are not having a struggle that you need to read Romans 7. Because there should be a war going on. There should be a law in your members that speaks to you that says that each time you want to do those things that are good, you find yourself not doing them. The things that are wrong, you find yourself doing them. Oh, wretched man that I am. Paul understood. He knew of the conflict. He knew of that war. But you know what he continued to do? He continued to fight. He didn't give up. We live in a culture that gives up. People give up on everything. Marriages, they give up on marriage, on parenting. They give up on their kids. In their devotional time, in their prayer life, they give up. In the areas of exercise, diet, whatever it would be, 
the spiritual as well as the earthly in that regard. People are not being committed to those things that are right, but the commitment comes to those things that are wrong. And then after a while, they become desensitized. And inside of them, the convicting voice that once was there, it's now becoming muted. And they're not hearing it as frequently. You can go through the motions, and then the faith that was genuine starts to take on more of a hypocritical, a fake faith. We sing the songs of Zion, but if it's not real from the heart, what does that profit? If we memorize Scripture, but we don't apply Scripture, what does it profit? If you obey simply to avoid judgment from God, but you're not obeying out of love, you're really operating on a very puerile level spiritually. That's childish. I like the fact that as my children age and mature and progress, there's a motivation in obedience to me as their dad that's not just based off of, you're going to get a spanking. It'd be a little awkward if my daughters were having to operate off of that level. Wouldn't be appropriate either. I'm thankful that that's transitioned. For my boys right now, they're still very much in that realm of being motivated through the Board of Education to the seat of instruction. (laughs) They're learning. My oldest boy is 11 almost, and, and it's neat to see the transition. It's neat to see that when he's done wrong, and my wife will say, hey, I had to... I had to spank Andrew today. It was, it was a rough day for him. And here's what was going on. And then I love to hear if she'll say, but about an hour later, he came up on his own and he just said he wanted to say sorry. He knew it was wrong and he wanted my forgiveness. Right, that does my heart well. We're making strides. We're transitioning. It's that process of movement beyond, okay, once the pain of the spanking wears off, I'm going to go right back to doing what I was doing. My commitment is to self and my ideals and what I want to do. And you can see in a heart of a child, and you can watch my children. They're by no means perfect. And, and you'll see my youngest and, hey, 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 come on back. And, you know, he, he's, he's torn. Ah. There's only one thing that's motivating going to dad, and that's that he doesn't want to get a spanking. It's not because out of love. You're like, oh, that's got to be harsh as a dad. Eh. It's not too bad. You learn the reality of that. I've said to my, my, my wife, I've said, you know, when Abraham climbs up into your arms, especially if he's trying to evade me because he knows he's in trouble, don't, don't take that. And we don't do that. We'll try to let each other know if this is genuine love or if he's simply trying to avoid the parent who's trying to discipline. <laughs> and if he comes to me, I know that he's probably trying to get away from my wife in that regard. And no, I'm not going to coddle you and hug you and say, how are you doing? Abraham, what did you do? <laughs> Or when he climbs up into my wife's arms, the same scenario would be true. You know, children can be manipulative. They can be very committed to their cause. They know what they want. They know exactly what they want from their earliest days. I had a friend of mine who he and his wife had a child rather late in life, and he's, he's uh, about a year older than me, and he's a dad for the first time. And, and he asked, he had said, he called me, and he said, is it possible that my son at eight months is, I mean, it, does he know what he's doing? And I'm like, oh man, he knew what he was doing far more before eight months. I mean, really? So this is a, could this be a disobedience issue? It's not a could be, it's 100%. He's committed to his cause in his way. 
And right now, the only motivation that children, when they're that young, have is that of punitive discipline. So what happens when we are as adults and we've been saved for X amount of years and our only concern is, am I going to get a spiritual spanking from my Heavenly Father? How does that make him feel? When I am supposed to be committed to him out of my love for him, not just because he'll chasten every son whom he loves. If my children never transition to that point and their actions were purely and only based off of avoiding punitive punishment, ah, we're missing it. There were those in Paul's day, they were not going to finish, they were not going to fight, they were giving in to self. He was simply addressing in this section in verses 5 through 8, his commitment. He can't speak to them, and I'll show that in just a little bit. He can't address their course. It is a personal pronoun. I am running my race. This is my course. I'm not saying it's my ministry. I'm saying this is the course that God's put me on. You can't run my race for me any more than you could run a race physically for me, which is illegal, and that's cheating. And you'd never be able to run in a race again if they caught you. I watched a documentary on how they're catching people in marathons that are cheating. And I know the whole story of Rosie Ruiz and let's jump on a bus and get to the end of the Boston Marathon before the others. Oh, they've become so much more savvy to trying to get around the system. And you might say, well, why would anybody do that? Okay, here's how it works. Um, the prize of the marathon, let's say, is $10,000. And I know that you can win the marathon. And so I'm going to pay you half of that prize money if you'll enter as me and wear the bib, as they call it, in my name, and then you win as me, and somehow we swap those things out so it comes down that I get the prize money, I share half with you. I mean, there's a racket that's being run, no pun intended, by those that are trying to get around it, and they're not fighting properly, which you'll notice when we start defining these words, when he says, I have fought a good fight. It means properly, appropriately, justly. From a perspective of where the Lord would say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's how you run the race. Doesn't mean you didn't get tired. It doesn't mean that you wanted to quit because you did want to quit at times and you were tired and you had sweat pouring down your face. It just means you ran it correctly. There was a guy that put a video out and it's of him running, and I think it's the New York Marathon. You could check and correct me later on that. He's videoing himself cheating through the marathon to show that it could be done. And so he's finding, uh, in, there are some aspects of how he was actually cheating that were mind-boggling that he was going to go to that extent. And he's showing how he's cheating through the marathon and he gets up to the end of the race and he's approaching the finish line and he's filming himself the entire time that he's doing this. And he says, you know what? I can't do it. He couldn't run across the finish line because he knew that it wasn't proper. It wasn't a good race. And so you know what he did? He ran the entire marathon in reverse 
and he did it accurately. He didn't get the award, he didn't get the medal, didn't get prize money. Nobody was there. The streets now had traffic back on them. Cars were back out in positions. But he said he changed in 26.2 miles because of all the people around him who were running it lawfully. And all of the people that were giving their all, literally their blood, sweat, and tears, and they were going to finish, and some of them just seemed about crippled. And he knew that he'd been cheating the whole time, so it motivated him to actually run the distance even though he wasn't going to get the prize in the end. Paul was not concerned about those that were running unlawfully. He wasn't as concerned, although I'm sure his heart was saddened by those who had quit, by those who had forsaken, by those who would not finish. He was simply saying he was going to be committed. Endure afflictions, it says in 2 Timothy 2, 3, as a good soldier. And I put in the italics and bold, Good soldier. I know that there was, uh, even today, Memorial Day, the U.S. Army had put out on Twitter, um, I think it was a question, and I'm, this is a paraphrase, but uh, what has your service brought to you? And some people initially were responding as far as the hard work and the effort and the, uh, the instruction they were given, and then some folks started to come in and they were highlighting all of the negatives. Turns out there were over 15,000 people that were voicing their negative view and the post-traumatic stress disorder and a family member who had committed suicide coming back with never-ending rage, one guy had put, inability to find a job in normal life. and Folks, I... I think that the army, even though they were trying to say, yes, we realize there's a lot of hurt and pain, and maybe today of all days, it is the day to have this question. And some had said, well, that just blew up in their face. And they had said, no, we don't feel that necessarily it blew up in our face. It allows us to have the dialogue. I can't speak to what everybody else was experiencing. But I can tell you this, of the gentleman that was in our church who recently moved, that served for 20 plus years valiantly, he was a Green Beret. He was a sniper. He's single to this day. No wife, no kids. Continues to serve the military. He would tell me that of the lessons he learned, that these points would be accurate. I've never heard him complain. I've never heard him speak of it being easy. I've never heard him try to use stories of what happened to his own gain and benefit. To the good soldiers, they don't quit mentally. They don't complain. They don't surrender physically. They are sure of their mission and who it is that they serve. They will rally the others when they see discouragement setting in. They'll hold others accountable to the mission at hand. They'll keep themselves free of entanglement and distraction. They will wear their uniform proudly. They know the meaning of the flag. They realize their time may be limited, so they make the most of their time. Spiritually speaking, I made the list for myself. This is what I want. This is how I want to run my race. This is how I want to live by faith. I want it to be said that someday as I stand before the Lord that I didn't quit mentally on God. 
I didn't check out, well, college is done. College is behind me. There's no need to study any longer. There's no need to pour myself into the Word. Just draw from a shallow well rather than delve deeply into what God has. I don't want to complain. I don't want to be a... I shared with my church about two weeks ago. I do not want to be that old, cantankerous, cynical, critical pastor. And by the way, I've met them. And I don't choose to go out with them and have lunch with them. That's not the pastor I want to have lunch with. I want to have lunch with the old pastor who has gray hair or no hair who will still be able to tell me that God is good and that through the hardships, God's grace was more than sufficient to be able to tell me areas in my own life that maybe he would see as a concern. There was a pastor friend of mine many years ago when I first started off at the church. I was 33 and he was 73. And we liked the fact that there was a 50-year gap between us And I would meet him at a diner at about 7 o'clock. His name is Pastor Wilbur Barber. And he would come at 7 o'clock to a diner, and he would be wearing a full three-piece suit. (laughs) And he saw me the very first time, and I was wearing something about like this. And he just said to me, a little underdressed, aren't you? (laughs) Uh, It's a diner, and it's 7 in the morning. I think I am overdressed. I was going to wear pajamas, but... (laughs) And we sat at the table, and I would pick his brain, and I would ask of him, if you could go back, Pastor Barber, what might be some things that you would change? You know what I loved about him? He never complained. He did not have sob stories of ministry and how it had mistreated him. Buried his daughter, buried his wife. Only thing he'd said of his daughter is that it doesn't seem like that's supposed to happen that as a pastor you'd have to do the funeral for your own daughter. He didn't have regrets in that respect. And then I asked him this question. I had said, you're 50 years my senior. Looking back, when you were 33, what would you tell me? What should I change? What should I do differently that you see in me? And he, and he gave me a, a good list. He didn't, he didn't say, oh, I don't have anything. He had, he had quite a bit to share with me. And he told me that he sees a lot of himself in me at that age, and here's some cautions I would give you. But you know what I loved? No complaining. He was sure of his mission. I want to be sure of what God's called me to do and to those that I'm called to serve. I want to rally others when they are discouraged or when I see discouragement set in. I want to hold myself accountable to others and also to the mission at hand. I want to keep myself free of the entanglements and the distractions. I want to proudly wear the uniform that God has called me to wear as Christian. I want to know and fully understand the meaning of the banner of the cross and to hold it proudly above my head and to know that I salute Christ as my commander. I want to realize that my time is limited and I don't know how much time I have, so I want to make the most of my time. I want to redeem the time because the days are evil. I want to redeem the time with my children, with my family, with my church. Even if those around me might not finish the race, or if they're going to cheat, or if they're going to try to get around it, or ride the bus to the finish line, if they're going to try to be dishonorable in the way that they do it, I want it to be that my life is marked by following the Lord 
and fighting the good fight, good fight of faith. I want you to notice, thirdly, Paul was committed to Christ even though many had forsaken him in the faith. When he says that he had fought the good fight of faith, it was that it was appropriate. He says that he had finished his, the word used is my course. It wasn't someone else who was going to finish it for him. And then he also had said that he had kept the faith. I'd made a note of this because I appreciated Brother Bill sharing in Sunday school at Kingsway. He was talking about the deity of Christ in John chapter 8. And uh, he was covering aspects of when Christ said, I am. The Jehovistic I am. The Ego Ami. And I was just sharing in our church some weeks back the importance of the article, the. And how many times in Scripture, it isn't just, are you Christ? But he was asked directly, are you the Christ? Are you literally the Messiah? There were many anointed, but are you the anointed? Are you the Messiah? Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Mark 8, 29, Thou art the Christ. Mark 14, 61, the question being asked, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Luke twenty two sixty seven. Art thou the Christ? Tell us. In John 6, 69, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ. John eleven twenty seven. She saith unto him, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Paul says this, I have kept the faith. Not just any faith. In, in our neighborhood, uh, there are those that come as the Mormons. They have a faith. We are inundated in my area with Jehovah Witness. Kingdom Hall seems to be thriving. They have a faith. It's a false faith, but they have a faith. My neighbor, four doors down, uh, he's a 33-degree mason in the Masonic Temple. Folks, that's not just Shriners wearing the poobah hats doing good things for burn victims in Memorial Day parades. It's his faith. And I sat in his living room with him on his couch and we talked about his faith with the Masonic Lodge and my faith in Jesus Christ. He wanted to specifically know why he wouldn't be able to be a member of our church. And I had said, well, that is correct that if you were a part of the World Council of Churches or a Masonic Lodge, that no, you wouldn't be able to be a member of the church. And he'd said, can you explain that to me? I had said, sure, it's based off of this. You really couldn't have two faiths. You can't have a faith in Jesus Christ and at the same time take an oath where you denounce Jesus Christ as God and have to subscribe to the architect of the universe and say that the Masonic Temple is the all in all. Folks, Christ is all in all. That is the faith. You can't, you can't do it on both sides. And I had told him, it's not that we're excluding anybody, it's by your membership that you're excluding yourself. I'm not denouncing you. It's by your oath and by your commitment and by your faith that truly you can't be on both sides of that issue. And he said to me, fair enough. 
He didn't have to argue that. He understood that. He acknowledged that. I, I could have gone into saying further that, you know what, when you take a, a, a blood oath that should you divulge the secrets of the Masonic Temple, that your neck is slit and your uh, tongue is laid out on your, your chest and all of the horrible things that they say, but I didn't have to. I didn't have to go into the darkness and truly the satanic influence upon the Masonic Temple. I didn't have to go through any of that, although I've studied it. It simply is this. You can't have two faiths. So those that come to our church that want to be members, their faith is in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That's the banner that's unfurled. That is what waves. That is what I submit to. That is what I follow. Paul understood who it was that he was following. He knew that he was keeping the faith. Thirdly, Paul was committed to Christ, even though many had forsaken him in the faith. I'm going to read these next verses quickly. We're out of time, but I want to conclude just by mentioning of these people, not all of them were embracing carnality. Okay, so here we go. Do thy diligence, verse 9 and following, to come shortly unto me. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Cretans to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he's profitable, profitable to me for the ministry. And Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee and the books, but especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom be thou ware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. At my first answer no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge, notwithstanding the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will and preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute Prisca and Aquila and household of Onesiphorus. Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Eubulus greeteth thee, and Pudens and Linus and Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. I want you to notice quickly, you'll see four divisions, and I'm going to give it to you quickly. There were those that forsook him based off of their carnality. So we have Demas, Alexander the coppersmith. There were those that were no longer present. They were absent because of their calling. It wasn't carnality. It's their calling. They were doing God's will. They just were elsewhere. We had uh, Cretans, Titus, Tychicus, uh, Carpus, Priscilla and Aquila, the house of Onesiphorus, Erastus. I was thinking earlier, the point I was making with Brother Mike that I appreciate his friendship. I appreciate the men of this camp. I appreciate their families. Those friendships are dear to me and to my family. And I'm all the way up in Cresco, Pennsylvania, and they're down here at Southend, but it's the calling of God in our lives that is that common bond. It's not because of carnality that I can't be with them each day. I would love that. That would be a lot of fun. I'd love to hang out with these guys and just enjoy that fellowship. And someday in glory, we're going to have that opportunity. 
when we praise the Lord and glorify Jesus Christ as our risen Savior, and for thousands upon thousands and millions of years, even though there is no formal time to be able to enjoy and celebrate what we have as the body of Christ. Not everybody that knew Paul had departed because of carnality. There were those that they were following the calling of God. Thirdly, some because of their condition. Notice he says of Trophimus, he was sick. He couldn't continue. He couldn't join in and be a part of that. And there may be those that you've had in your life that because of sickness and illness, because of death, they no longer walk alongside of you in the faith. But as I just said, notice if you're in the faith, and if they were in the faith, you have all of glory to be able to rehash the goodness of God and the way that He brought us together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Fourthly and lastly, some were available, and it's not a long list, because of their commitment mixed with their availability. Those that were following God's calling were still committed. But these individuals were available. They were able to come to Him at that time. And we have Luke, John Mark, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, and Claudia. There was a consistency of their faith. Maybe the Lord has it that someday you will cross paths again with folks that you served at Southland Christian Camp in 2019. Maybe someday it's that the Lord brings a camper across your path, and you're no longer counselor camper in your relationship. Now your peers and your friends in Christ. One of my friends and uh, brothers in Christ at our church, his name is Randall. He and his wife, they have eight children. He was in my cabin in 1996. I was his counselor. Now I'm his pastor. We still have a friendship in Christ. That summer, Mike Herbster was the lead counselor for our team. And that cabin that I was in in the morning when I would creep out of that cabin and I would go out and I would pray with Brother Mike, it was one week that I had said to Brother Mike, I'd said, this cabin, I'll tell you what, they are wanting to do what God wants them to do. I haven't had an ounce of problems with them, man. If only this cabin could continue for the rest of the summer. But I knew that the next week was probably going to be, be atrocious because of how good that week was going. And I had said to Mike, I said, I don't know, but uh, I would say I would recommend these guys for the honor cabin. And then he had said, well, would there be anybody that has something else? And the others had said, well, you know, I think also that, that they really seem to have a sharp group of guys. That was Randall's cabin. And through the years, he had saved a ribbon that he had been given as a camper. And on the back side of it, it said July the 10th, 1996, Honor Cabin, Rodeo Island, Wilds Christian Camp. That left an impact in his life. And for many years, his calling and my calling, we were in different locations. And then the Lord brought him and his family into Cresco, Pennsylvania. It's a joy to be able to see that other side of when the Lord allows paths to cross again. Wouldn't it be exciting if 10 years from now, 15 years from now, you cross paths with somebody, you're having a hard time making out their name, 
But you know for sure I worked with you. It was 2019. You worked, you worked at Southland, right? And they'll say, yeah. What was your name again? I'm sorry. And you'll say, well, actually, I'm, I'm married now, so my last name, it was. And, oh, okay, yeah, that's great. And you know what? If you're both committed to Jesus Christ, here's how it's going to work. So what's life like right now? Well, I'm, I'm married, and I've got some kids, and uh, this is the church that we're a part of, and we're loving the Lord. We've got a great church, and, and we love the people. How's ministry going? It, eh, it's got its ups and downs, but God has been good and God's been gracious. And you know where the conversation goes? It moves forward. Or if you choose to say, you know what? I'm not going to show a commitment to Christ. I'm going to do my own thing. The conversation might be something like this. Didn't you work at Southland in 2019? Yeah, I did. So what's life like now? Um, well, I'm working this job and um, you're trying to think about all of the things that you can say. You don't have a lot maybe to draw off of. You know that the last time you were together, it was a completely different atmosphere spiritually where you were at and where that individual was at. And so the conversation slowly just makes its way back to the memories. Remember the staff party we had? Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. That was good. Remember, yeah, remember singing in choir. <laughs> that, was, that was good too. And then that trip we took, and I don't have a whole lot more to say because I haven't really been committed to Christ. Clearly, we're going in different directions. The decision lies with you. The choice of the journey, it lies with you. Is your commitment to self to your goals, to a career, to making money, hobbies, or is your commitment to Jesus Christ? Thanks so much for tuning in to the Southland Podcast. May the message you've just heard be truth that transforms your heart and life. Christ loves you and wants you to grow in His grace through salvation and sanctification. If you've never placed your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ, we'd love to talk to you personally. Please give us a call at 318-894-9154 or shoot me an email at mherpster at southlandcamp.org. Christ has promised eternal life and a life worth living if you will only believe in Him. May the Lord bless you in your pursuit of Christ-like living. Tune in next time right here for another message on the Southland Podcast.